these days, it's been so seemingly different to me in these last three years, especially in the, the instincts that I have been a part of my life over 40 years of pastoral care and pastoral ministry and personal, personal presence, including an appointment, visitation, has been so different in this era, and I, I still find myself sometimes like almost somebody who's checking to see if his parachute's attached or check, checking my, my rearview mirrors because I feel disoriented as a pastor many times in that, in that my instinct has always been to be by the bedside of somebody or be at their, to be with them, to connect with them personally. And this whole era has made that um, at times impossible and at other times uh, maybe the expectation or the awareness of that is just lost in our culture. I grieve that because part of what we love here at Liberty Church, and we want to celebrate this today again, is the life-giving power of the good news of Jesus Christ that's embedded in the Great Commission and, ne- and always has within it the seed of new growth. Now, we're going to be talking today about a, a little different aspect of going for the gold And as I ask you to think about uh, this aspect together today, we are going to first tap into the theme of two weeks ago. And for many of us, because of the interruption, two weeks ago feels like a month ago at least. But we're going to reconnect here for a moment in the theme of Psalm 19. And some of you were with us two Sundays ago, and as we talked about the gold mine of God's Word, This is one of four interlocking themes that are a part of our vision for going for the gold. The gold mine of God's word, the gold of Christ-like character, the gold of goals that glorify God, and then the gold standard of ethics that God's word empowers us not only to honor, but to walk in. And these four aspects of going for the gold are going to be interwoven over these weeks. So we, we backtrack for a moment to Psalm 19, and you'll remember, of course, that that 19th Psalm uh, gives us that um, wonderful panoramic overview of five different types or synonyms, mostly overlapping, of the scriptures themselves. And what is so striking there in Psalm 19, 7 to 11, that the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. All of these principles show us that God's Word is dynamically active in our lives, and it culminates in that 11th verse with this phrase, and I'd like to ask you to say it aloud with me, just this phrase there uh, from Psalm 19, more to be desired Are these than gold? Would you say that aloud with me once again? More to be desired are these than gold. Now, whatever the tangible gold price is today is irrelevant to this because whether it's $1,900 an ounce or has gone to $2,500 an ounce since I last looked, doesn't matter because God's Word is infinitely more precious than whatever the spot price of gold may be this week. And we look at this, we look at this in Psalm 19 partly to to understand and, and embrace the fact that God has equipped us in Scripture. God gives us in His written word 
of an endless life wrapping, empowering source that at every phase of our walk with Christ, we are literally being invited and drawn by the Holy Spirit into new discoveries of how the priceless gold of God's Word can be invested in our hearts and our lives. So we also noted that that 19th Psalm concludes with a prayer. And this prayer is one that we shared two weeks ago and we want to share it again here together today because it's a part of that overall understanding that we'll see today about how the gold of Christ-likeness is activated within the hearts of believers, empowering us with fresh motivation. When we turn to the New Testament in a moment, we're going to be looking at the dynamic motivation. The Holy Spirit flows into our lives as we boldly activate the truth of that gold mine ex- exploration of Psalm 19. Now, I'll invite you again, and this is one of these I love because it's so self-contained. This one verse is a great one just to take with us into the daily challenges of our lives. And would you just pray it aloud with me, a prayer to our Heavenly Father together. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. This capsule of activated prayer is one that not only is beautiful to say and beautiful to hear, but it is one that packs into its verbiage the very motivation that we're going to be looking at as we as we move into the gold quest in the New Testament. And the New Testament uses a phrase many times that is a bit jarring to the ear of the contemporary Christian today who has been nurtured oftentimes in only the notion that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The wondrous truths of God's grace that infill and enrich and enliven our lives are far beyond what any human tongue can ever do justice to. Um, Someone used this illustration years ago, and I think it's a good one. It works. The old uh, musical My Fair Lady had this uh, expression in one of the songs, I've grown accustomed to your face. Now, sadly, the modern Christian often is a person who, of whom it could be said they've grown too accustomed to his grace. <laughs> because what we are often doing when we miss this truth of rewards in Scripture is we're often assuming that the grace of God means there's nothing that God requires out of me. Now, indeed, of course, to be very crystal clear, we'll see it in a couple of scriptures here, God's word is crystal clear. There is not one scintilla of merit or value 
or righteousness or goodness that any of us can ever add, even to try to add it, would be to tarnish the, the wondrous gift of salvation through faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And yet, to be true to the New Testament, we know that the New Testament brings us many examples of what I call rewards in the realms, in the realm of grace. In the realm of God's grace, these rewards are powerfully revealed as a source of dynamic motivation. Now, here's just a few quick examples of these emphases on the rewards that the child of God, yes, in Scripture, and under the realm of the grace of God, that he or she is to anticipate and to enter into and to thank God for and to rejoice in. And the more I delve into this, the more clear it has been to me that this truth of the rewards... Now, somebody might say, parenthetically, uh, oh, I don't need any reward. It's all about Jesus. It's just all about loving God, and I'm not interested in reward. Well, if you're not interested in anything about reward at all, then you're going to miss a major theme of the teachings of Jesus in the parables and the clear explanation of Hebrews about the dynamic reward of faith. So, what we, if we recoil at the word reward, it's simply because we're thinking of it in terms merit. And that's not the way that it's being used in the New Testament text. It's being used as God himself blessing and endowing the action of the Holy Spirit in the life of a child of God to lay hold of all that God has for him or her. In other words, another way to put it would be the internal motivation that the Holy Spirit uses to stir us on in a passionate pursuit of Christ-likeness. When we see it that way, I think we get a slightly different picture, and this picture is a key for motivation. Think of these first three examples. Your confidence will be richly rewarded. Hebrews 10.35 says, don't, don't get nervous about the things that are happening around you to the point that you throw away your confidence. Sure, God's Word is realistic about our emotional and our mental and our psychological makeup. So God's Word shows us time and time and time again, often mirrored through the lives of, of uh, followers of the Lord Jesus that faced incredible odds and obstacles. God's Word shows us that the Holy Spirit, one of the Holy Spirit's works in our lives is to empathize with us. In John 16, 18, Jesus said, John 16, 13, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of himself, but he will show you things concerning Christ. He said in John 14, 18, that I will not leave you helpless. I will not leave you as orphans, literally. I will not orphan you, John 14, 18, but I will come to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. So in Hebrews 10, 35, we see a people under enormous test and facing like we do a, a culture that is often openly hostile to the declaration of the lordship of Jesus Christ and the principles that we honor as followers of Jesus. And so Hebrews 10.35 gives us this resounding 
message. Don't lose your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence. May I tell you today, one of the rewards of God, one of his rewarding promises in your life is that your confidence in God can grow stronger and stronger in your race. He promises in Colossians 3, you'll receive an inheritance, read these last few words underlined there with me, from the Lord as a reward. Yes, that text is about being faithful to Christ in the way we carry out our work in the workplace, in the marketplace of life, in the engagements of our career and our vocation and our our engagement with our community in all of our responsibilities and doing our work, even if we don't like the work, even if the work is, is somewhat not our preference, even if it's not the setting we want, even if it's not the opportunity we hope for, Colossians says, doing all of our work heartily with a passion unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord we receive the reward. That is a powerful part of God's motivation. And then, of all things that we might want to understand about this principle of motivation, the fact is that God reveals his nature in Hebrews 11 and in Genesis 15 as specifically as the rewarder. Uh, He says to Abraham, Abraham, don't be afraid. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. In other words, Abraham, I'm your reward. And then here, in Hebrews eleven six, 6, that truth is repeated in the very definition of faith. What does it mean to believe God? And the text says, we come to him when we simply believe that he is and accept that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Could you say aloud with me together today? God is my rewarder. Would you say that? God is my rewarder. And it's a dual truth, because he, he is the reward, but he's also the rewarder. The greatest reward of all, of course, is knowing, knowing him. The motivation that springs out of this compels us, it, it propels us on the racetrack of life. In the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, the 400-meter world record set by Lee Evans in 1968 at Mexico City was broken by Butch Reynolds. Henry Reynolds, uh, now about 59 years old, he's still coaching a lot of young people in in track and field, and when he broke that 400-meter record, setting a new new record um, of 43 seconds and 43.29 seconds, Reynolds was asked later about his technique of dealing with the challenge that he'd worked and labored for for so long. And the, 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 the stunning sight of him breaking that record with his six foot three inch frame, 177 pounds, and that eight and a half foot uh, lunge that he employed in this quick race, 
that Reynolds was asked about it and said that what he always did is paced himself by exerting 80% of his energy in that first burst, but conserving consciously some of his, some of his pouring it on to those last uh, segments of seconds so that he's at 99% passion right at the very end of that sprint. In a way, that picture is perfectly suited to describe the way the yearning for Christ-like character is reflected to us in the New Testament. We saw that Hebrews 11 pictures this understanding of God as the rewarder, but it is not some static, some antiseptic or academic concept. God's grace is not an academic concept. God's grace is the description of all that he has provided in Christ so that first our salvation, our forgiveness, our standing before God is completely from start to finish the work of the blood of Christ cleansing our soul, making us new, and redeeming us into the family of God. And yet, out of that comes a highly tuned motivation to move for God, to pour it on, to be a people who are passionate for the reward. Think of two exhibits. I think exhibit A and exhibit B for a moment in Scripture that show us that same kind of pouring it on, passionately pursuing Christ-like character. One is easy to think about because it's such a vivid story, and that is Moses. And Hebrews 11 draws from his life to tell us this. And one of the things that the writer of that great hero, uh, Heroes of the Faith chapter summarizes in that uh, 39 verses of Hebrews 11, when time after time after time, the characters that are described are people who faced enormous obstacles and uncertainties and adversities of all types, both internal and external. And yet, there was a motivation, there was a stirring, there was something in them produced by the knowledge they could never have delivered themselves, their salvation came only from God, but because of his great love, there was a passionate pouring on for the race ahead. And Moses is a great example of that. One event that the writer of Hebrews pinpoints in the life of Moses is that point in time where, as a younger man, he had been adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. Therefore, by all rights, Acts chapter 7 tells us that he was trained in all of the, all of the knowledge and the advanced research and, for their time, the contemporary advanced understanding of mathematics and the world around them and their rudimentary understanding of science. And the Egyptian culture at that point in time had a highly developed pattern of training young minds. Moses was trained, it says in Acts, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And by all rights, at a certain point in time, he could have, he could have benefited personally by staying in the, in the uh, trajectory of success toward the Pharaoh's family. 
But here's where the Bible describes his decision. A deep motivation stirred Moses to make a quality choice. He regarded disgrace, it says in Hebrews eleven twenty six. he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because why he was looking for the reward. Yeah, there is a reward motivation that is revealed in Scripture that in a way capsulizes what it means to be passionate first about the person of Christ. Well, if Moses is exhibit A, who could be exhibit B? Ha, well, there could be lots of candidates. But you know the candidate that I choose? One that Jesus chose in a pretty remarkable statement about the whole matter of being a follower of his. In Matthew 10, when Jesus talked about any believer, every believer, all the believers, that is, Jesus was pinpointing this reward principle, the giver of all grace, the the fountain of our salvation, the one in whose body and his shed blood we found ourselves at the very at the very point of our own despair with a load of guilt upon our back coming to the hill called mount calvary and our burden rolling off our back and christ becoming lord and savior of all and yet jesus in training disciples in training us jesus pinpoints this reward principle as Not a contradiction of grace, but as the proof of a grace-empowered life. And he, he narrows down this motivational truth in life to one of the most basic, in fact, indeed what would seem the most mundane of choices, and that is the one he uses about a cup of cold water. He says, if anyone, would you shout out anyone? Anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose his reward. Now Jesus is inviting and calling his people, calling the disciples, to a trust in him that will bring them deep assurance of salvation And in doing so, he says, the demonstration of that freedom of soul that's in you is that you are, because God's great mercy has been poured out so abundantly upon you, infinitely and eternally, what the very least that could be said of a redeemed child of God is that in his or her heart, she joyfully lifts a cup of cold water, a symbol of The acts of kindness, the acts of grace, the joyous realities that are a part of our lives as followers of Jesus. And when we serve, we serve a church like ours in a very challenging time where every, all hands on deck are needed in this congregation. We serve God's people in mission. We serve a a person that we don't even know out of love for Christ to lift a burden from them or to be alongside them if they have a need or to 
contribute financially in the mission of the kingdom of God in a thousand and one other ways. And Jesus is saying, in essence, that the reward, when it's done out of the right heart, out of the right source, out of the right motivation, that this becomes a rewarding experience in life. So one way to think of it is then to realize that this reward principle woven into all of Scripture is kind of a a window for us into a vital New Testament truth about how we see our individual response to God. Another way to put it is that every day of our lives, we have the opportunity to pour out in gratitude, in free gratitude, for what God pours into us by the grace of God. An old, wonderful old Welsh hymn of 180 years ago puts the experience of forgiveness in this picturesque way. On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgate of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. That pouring out, that infinitely and eternally effective pouring out of the grace of Jesus Christ, demonstrated in his sacrificial death on the cross, accomplished through the atoning death that he came to bring to this earth, that becomes the foundation from which we get a window into real motivation, a different kind of motivation. It's not a motivation to gain anything because Christ has already gained it all for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, if you're in Christ, all things already belong to you. That is, you've, been the, you've become the heir of all of God's kingdom treasures. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, because in Him, before the foundation of the world, He provided that we could be made holy and without blame before Him in love. To the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He accepted us in the Beloved. These vital truths, then, are the springboard for this truth of reward. Not a reward of merit, a reward of response to Almighty God. Here's the way it's stated in the Old Testament. Once again, a classic passage of reminder about the reward. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. Now, if God was promising those who were a thousand years prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that there is a shining reward, a, a glistening reward for you, how much more may we say that, yes, in the New Testament, and would you open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Now, as I say, you know, a lot of these here on the screen to observe, but I'd like you to see this part in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Maybe that one of the most pivotal and seminal passages of the New Testament about rewards and what it really means to be rewarded by God, what it 
what it points to is, is nothing less than the truth that because of that grace we've talked about, there's always, every day of your life, there's a basis for you to know for sure that, that you can every day find Christ-likeness becoming more a reality in your life. And, and there are two phrases in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that kind of bring that part of this together. Now the first one is in verse 10. And if you notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 10 that the Bible is giving each of us a visual picture of what it means to grow in Christ Paul really used two separate illustrations in verse 9 that you, the believers, are a field for God, agricultural, and the other, you are a building for God. Now, these two images come together in uh, demonstrating that the good news of Jesus Christ is both an ongoing growth dynamic, the agricultural image, and the seeding and the uh, plowing and the watering and the preparing of the soil, all of that pictures the life dynamics of what it means to be in grace, to be in the grace of God. But the building image, the edifice image, then has another element to it, and that is a way to visualize the works, W-O-R-K-S, of a child of God. Not works that are meritorious, but works that come out of the response to the goodness of God, they are freely given, they are freely expressed, but they should not be minimized as negligible. Too often we miss the beauty of the fact that not only in salvation, but in our spiritual growth, God is calling redeemed believers to be actively, passionately pursuing Christ-likeness. Yes, there's a kind of an endeavor inside the heart that is totally possible because of the grace of God. Hebrews 4 puts it in the imagery of uh, a paradox. It says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into rest. Hebrews 4.11, that's intriguing. A complete paradox. Paradoxically, let us endeavor in our hearts to enter into that full rest of his redeeming grace that he's provided us. Why that paradox? Because exactly like here in 1 Corinthians 3.10, it is clear that the imagery of the edifice is that Christ is our foundation. Look first at the 11th verse. If you have your Bible open, go to verse 11 first. For no one can lay any foundation. Apostle Paul here talking about what it means to truly trust in Christ alone for your salvation and the foundation of the church. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord, that wonderful hymn. It comes from this text. For no other foundation can be laid than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The past tense perfect in the Greek there is emphatic, and so emphatic that in the Greek text, Often word order helps to determine emphasis. In the Greek text, the word foundation is the first word in the order of the text. In English, it carries over into this, that no one can lay any foundation. But the text emphasizes the foundation. 
is exclusively Christ. And Christ Jesus is the firm foundation, the permanent foundation, and once laid, that is through death, burial, resurrection, ascension, Christ's completed work, it's done. It is finished. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. The hymn writer got it exactly right. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. The full empowering reality of being redeemed by the blood of Christ is exactly what that foundation is in 1 Corinthians 3.11. The foundation is laid. Nothing can be ever added. Not one tiny smidgen of human merit could ever add. In fact, as I said, it would tarnish any attempt of human religion and human works and human pride in seeking to somehow make it look better, make ourselves look better, earn our way to God. All of that has been diminished and eviscerated by the Christ who, slay, who slew our sins on Calvary's cross. But now back up to that 10th verse. There is a part that we play. What is the part we play? And the imagery of this edifice in verse 10 goes like this. Paul, speaking of laying the foundation in terms of the teaching and the understanding of the cross as a wise master builder in the middle of verse 10. And he talks about himself and other apostles like Apollos and, and Peter. And he talks about the fact that all ministers, whoever they are, any human minister, is simply a servant who has no power in and of him or herself, but simply to water or to sow seed or to harvest, or to cultivate, or to teach, or to impart. But none of us hold a candle of significance to the power of God who produces life. So Paul says, I did my part as a wise architectone, uh, the architect. I, I am the architect of the believing basis of this church at Corinth. But then he says, each one should build with care. In other words, really what these texts talk about as far as our works are the outflow of our life answering that classic question that Francis Schaeffer coined so effectively about 48 years ago when he said, how should we then live? How then should we live? In light of the then, in light of the cross, in light of the resurrection, in light of his awesome grace that set us free so that we can live and love and serve and know that our life can be shaped by a passionate call to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The grace of God in its fullest and most joyous ma manifestation, is the gift of assurance that then impels all of us to a passionate pursuit of Christ-likeness. So we can enter into this, uh, this beautiful imagery. Titus 3.5 puts it like this. Maybe read this one aloud with me again, another text. Not 
by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration, the new birth, and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus. So here's the picture. In his pouring out abundantly upon us, we come back into 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and would you look at that 12th verse? Look at that 12th verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because when you look at this, you see six types of building materials mentioned. And the, and the, the call is, because of this great mercy that we've received, the call is, if anyone builds on the foundation with what? Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. You can see immediately in these six a descending order of quality. From, from solid gold and silver and precious stones all the way down to flimsy straw and hay. Are you going to build upon the, on this awesome foundation of Christ and his finished work? Are you going to add like cheap tinsel to that? Are you going to just toss straw? Are you just going to throw a tip at God? Are you going to just treat God's, all that we've just seen about his grace, are you going to treat it like, ah, ah, whatever, God doesn't really, whatever, just good for God. No, he's saying the very logic, the internal spiritual logic of salvation is that because of all he's done, the heart of a child of God is stirred with motivation for Christ-likeness when he or she realizes every day of my life, in fact, every hour of every day, there is some way in which my response to my Savior can take on a higher and higher dimension of quality. Yes, yes, I can grow in Christ. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Paul said it in, first, in Philippians 3.10 when he said, I'm forgetting the things that are behind. And for Paul the Apostle, when he wrote that, it was a lot of awesome experiences with God as well as a lot of trouble. But Paul had already been mightily used of God. Extraordinary miracles came from the hands of Paul in Acts 19. But in Philippians, he writes, Everything behind me, I'm just leaving in the dust. Why? Because passionately, internally, my heart is to press for the mark, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ. Was Paul doubting the merit of his salvation? No. He was stirred by the reality. Jesus has done this for me. Oh, in the depth of my being, I want to add, I want to add um, the very best. Gold. Go for the gold. I, I, I think it's so awesome to stop and realize that what this section of Scripture for Corinthians 3 does, I think it, it kind of brings together the the clear into clear focus why we're why rewards is a truth of the New Testament that's part of the package of motivation. And it is this grace saturates the servant space. Paul the Apostle put it that way at the beginning of the chapter where he chided the Corinthians. He said, You people, it's hard for me to even write you advanced truth because you're 
you're still, your attitudes of comparing one to another and, and competitive views about which apostle is better, he says, you're showing carnality. You're showing a lack of understanding of the new nature that Christ has put in you. That's why 1 Corinthians 3 opens with a chiding about why are you responding in such a fleshly way? Why not respond to the goodness of God with a passion to grow and a passion to know that Jesus Christ is your living Savior every day and that in your response to God, you, yes, you, can add gold to the structure of Christianity that the world sees. No, your own making, no. A gold that comes out of response because grace saturates the servant space. Paul the Apostle put it in a different way in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, when he said, it's by the grace of God that this gift has been imparted to me that I'm to make known to you the mystery that both Jews and Gentiles now in the blood of Christ stand in a place where they can all receive the gift and they can all go for the gold. It's the grace of God, not only that saved me, it's the grace of God in which we labor. Hmm. Now the gold I suggest in this passage, in verse 12 and 13, the gold and the silver are the, the highest of qualities. It's a way of describing conformity to Christ. It's a way of saying in our lives that you might recoil a bit from that calling on a daily basis to say, how can I become more like Jesus? Can I really become more like Jesus? The answer is yes. And you, you may have failed in some way. You may have failed yourself. You disappoint yourself in some way. But the Lord comes along in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he says, there's a building taking place right now. Christ the foundation is beckoning all of us in our words, our attitudes, our actions, our motives, that we ask the Holy Spirit to give us a passion, a fresh passion, a fiery passion, to let the life of Christ be known and be seen. Kind of a little bit more of a picturesque paraphrase, I think the way that um, the Eugene Peterson's paraphrase called The Message conveys this, let each one build or let each one add to. Again, it's a picture, it's an illustration that, that we come to the job site. Think of this church for an example. In a way, we're called who share a calling for the Great Commission, and when we come to the job site, we're to show up ready to go. Show up ready to build. When you go to your job site, whether it's in Annapolis or in Baltimore or in Gettysburg or in Hanover or in Frederick or in Westminster, when you go to your job site every week, you show up ready to bring the gold of a passion for Christ-likeness on the scene in that setting, as well as in this setting. And the paraphrase that Eugene Peterson gives us of that text is kind of, I think, picturesque in that light. He says, let each carpenter. Paul says, I'm like the, he said, I'm like the, the, the job supervisor, but he says, let each carpenter who comes on the job site take care to build on the foundation. Take particular care in picking out your building materials eventually going to be a thorough and rigorous inspection. 
Now the text in the NIV conveys it in a little more concise way, and here's, here's how it's stated in verse 13. Look at that in your Bible again, just before we close. Their work will be shown for what it is. Do you see that, 1 Corinthians 3, 13? Their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So the text says, all of our work, yes, work, W-O-R-K. It's an all-inclusive word wrapped around, I think of it as, the totality of our motives, our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. That is what our work is. Not, not a merit, but a response. It is the totality of who you are. It's the totality of your attitude, motives, actions, and attitudes, so that this text is a call from God to enter into the power of growing daily and expecting improvement. Do you and I expect improvement? Do we expect improvement? If there's any shadow of doubt about that, this text should, finish, should seal it for us because it's really saying that on a daily basis we show up at God's job sites. We're like the, the hired help that shows up to build and the work we do, the response of our hearts to Christ will be shown, he says, because the day, capital D, the daylight is coming. What's that daylight? That daylight is described again in Scripture as the, when the morning star arises and Christ himself appears and finishes this great project. In fact, in the next chapter, we won't turn there, but I just put it here as a, as a clarity. As Paul says, this day coming is so important that he says, even now, I don't, I don't settle on final decisions when I meet people. I, don't, I may have a perception, but I leave final decisions to God because I know I don't see it all. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that all the secrets of men, all the hidden motives of human beings will be made in absolutely unavoidable clarity on the day, capital D, on the day that the Lord Jesus, that we see him face to face. He puts it this way in that text in Corinthians. He will bring to light the actual motives of the heart. Now that's a great place to conclude today and to go out into a week of opportunity because in this, in this text of Corinthians, the, the, the heart, the pivoting truth is so life-giving that you can expect improvement. Oh my, whatever takeaway God may put in your heart today, I hope you would know that yes, your responses to your living in love, in gratitude for his great salvation, are an ongoing quest for the gold of Christ-likeness. Lord, as we go into the challenges and opportunities of the week ahead, as we reach out in the love of Christ to people around us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, put a passionate pursuit of the gold of Christ-likeness in our hearts, knowing, Lord, that we stand on the joyous and awesome foundation that can never be shaken, that you've done it all for us so that your grace brings salvation and our service is a flow of gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.